The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we're going to be talking about a topic that um, a lot of people find taboo um, because of our fear, actually. But it's facing death to live a better life. Now, before you turn that dial or click that button, whatever it is, um, let me tell you why this is important and what my guest has to share. My guest, actually, Heather Lendy, is an obituary writer for a newspaper in Alaska. And uh, she has a great statement about this. Um, she says, we are all writing our own obituary every day by how we live. The best news is that there's still time for additions and revisions before it goes to press. And that's kind of the point. Most of us are afraid to face our own mortality because um, we're afraid. We don't really know what's on the other side. That's part of it. We don't want to miss the people, of course. So we deny death. We pretend that we're never going to die or that they're going to find a cure for death before it gets to be our turn. Well, that doesn't seem terribly likely. And so we need to look at what we can learn from death um, by facing it and learning how to live a better life. Our obituary isn't written yet, and that's, that is the good news. So um, let, me, let me tell you, Heather is an award-winning writer, from essays in the New York Times to stories in Woman's Day uh, to the obituaries that I mentioned in the Alaskan newspaper where she lives. She's also a best-selling author, and her books, besides uh, Find the Good, which is what we're going to be talking about today, Find the Good, Unexpected Life Lessons from a Small-Town Obituary Writer. Um, she has also written... Um, where are I have it... She has also written, If you lived here, I'd know your name, and take good care of the garden and the dogs. And then her latest book is Find the Good, the one that we're going to be discussing today. So, Heather, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Dr. Carroll. It's very nice of you to have me. You know, I've been kind of enchanted looking at your website and reading your obituaries and reading, just reading all about you because... Um, I actually, you're from Long Island, you grew up in Long Island, you met your husband in college, um, you both decided, I don't know whose idea it was, but his. you decided to, <laughs> his idea, yes, I had a feeling, <laughs> to drive across the world um, to, or to go to Alaska, and there you have stayed for about 30 years. Yes, yep, that's, and right now, it's funny, I'm, I, if you hear a dog barking, I'm 
I'm uh, upstairs in my my bedroom where it will be quiet, so one of my neighbors won't come in the door. And um, uh, I'm watching out on the beach in front. There's uh, several eagles, and they're all um, fighting over a salmon. And so it's quite dramatic. They keep flying by the window and then zipping off the porch and going back down into the water. Wow. Well, that's before we get into the obituaries, that that just amazing. What made your husband want to go to Alaska? Uh, well, he studied forestry in school, and we were young when we got married, and he, he decided that if we were going to get married, we didn't want to be just like our parents were. And so... Uh, he wanted to go to Alaska and see where the big trees were, and um, huh. we've just been here ever since. And it's, you know, from the pictures on your website, I mean, and just in general, Alaska is a beautiful place. It's just kind of um, sort of an, an unusual place to end up, but you have really, it's certainly a great place to be a writer, not just for the newspaper obituaries, but the other books that you've written. I mean, it's um, it's very conducive to uh, to creativity, I would imagine. Yeah, and you know, Alaska is a really big place, and the part that I live in um, is on the uh, sort of the southeast coast. Along, it's a whole area full of fjords and uh, inland waterways. Um, Glacier Bay National Monument is actually right out my bedroom window. The boundary is just on the other side of the Chilkat River from me, and so um, you know, here it's uh, there are sort of little towns. It's dotted with small towns that are connected by uh, ferries and small planes. But um, mm. Haines itself, the town I live in, is full of um, creative people who I think find Alaska very inspiring, um, not just the place but the people. And also I think our long winters contribute to um, to time to do things that you might not have in a, in a place that might have a nicer uh, winter climate. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, okay, um, tell us how you wound up being uh, your town's obituary writer. Well, what happened was um, I was writing uh, what we call the social column for the Chilkat Valley News, the newspaper that I write for, a weekly paper, circulation 1,000, very small, 8 pages, 10 pages, sometimes 16 pages, and duly noted as sort of the birth announcements or the weddings or you know, the the Lendy family went on vacation and visited, you know, Heather's dad in upstate New York, and they ran into someone from Alaska in Grand Central Station or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's duly noted. And, and all the names are in boldface. It's a very popular column. And uh-huh. um, I was writing that when an elderly uh, woman who was um, uh, my mother, uh, uh, the mother of a friend of mine was dying, and she got in a little with a, a new reporter at the newspaper who was kind of an investigative type, and she didn't like his tone. And typically the reporter at the paper writes the obituaries, and Haynes, they're considered news here. And she said that if I could write about live people, then I could write about dead people, and asked if I'd write her obituary. Uh-huh. And uh, so the editor said, sure, because, you know, it's not everybody's favorite beat. Yeah. And I've just been writing them ever since, and that was in 1996, and I figure we've done... We've done a little over 400 now. Wow. So, okay, so how, you know, what was that like? What what was that experience like for you when you began? How, what was your journey like? Well, um, you know what, I, I followed the newspaper is, you know, not what you think. Like, uh, it's not sort of a little small town kind of a hokey sort of a paper. Um, it's uh, very 
the editors have always been very AP style and, you know, kind of by the book. And so the obituaries, they had a format, which I, I follow, um, which is really a kind of a hybrid of what your standard obituary might be and then a profile um, with, you know, several sources on the person. Um, so that was already there. But I think the person that died, her name was Nedra Waterman, and she, in a way, uh, really taught me um, how to write an obituary because she mm. had written down all the things that she thought should be in hers mm. from, you know, all the important dates in her life, uh, her her mother's maiden name, you know, things that I, I might not have, you know, thought about or realized had to be there. And um, so she had a list of the important stuff, and then I filled around the personality stuff, and that's pretty much how how I've been doing it ever since. Well, I've read some of your the obituaries that you've written, and um, it, they have like a, besides all the important information, they have a real Garrison Keillor kind of feel to them. Like you, people who don't didn't know that person um, get a real impression of what their life was like and kind of care, get to care about that person. Well, I hope so, you know. I, I, I think that I, I try... In, in every obituary I write, to imagine if somebody didn't even know this person, would what would they would would they want to know them? I, I kind of think like that. Would they? Well, I like when people get done with an obituary to say, "Gosh, I should have had them over for dinner," or "I mm-hmm. wish I'd known them." And I like to do that even in a town as small as ours, where people do kind of know everybody, because sometimes there's things in people's past that. Um, they don't talk about or brag about or, or say anything, but once they die, their families tell you. And I love to surprise people um, that think they knew someone with a story about their youth um, in an obituary. There was um, a guy who taught school for many years in uh, uh, Kukwana, a, a native Clinket village just north of Haines, and very gentle, sweet man. And it turned out he was a Golden Gloves bantamweight huh. boxing champion in Chicago um, huh. in his youth. And I had nobody had any idea, you know. And but his daughters showed me the little gloves and the little book that lists all the the champions, and 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 there he was. Huh. So how have you, um, you know, I know that you, how have you as these? So it's been almost twenty years, or right, yeah, since ninety. Mm-hmm. And um, have you? Well, obviously you've learned a lot from this, and that's what you write about in your. Um, book find the good so what can what have you learned and what what do you want us to learn from from your experiences well i think you know i i have learned a lot about all kinds of things mostly about living you know a good life and i and i've learned it in the same way that most people do when you know when you leave a funeral you know everybody goes home from those things i think and thinks to themselves oh you know i don't have as much time as i i I would like to have, I need to, you know, call my mom or, you know, visit my neighbor or maybe I need to work a little less and take a little more time for, you know, the people I love. Those kind of things happen to everybody. But usually, you know, it's like if if you're lucky, it's only like once a year or once every few years or maybe it's only been two or three times in your lifetime that you've had to go to one of these things. And for me, it happens about 30 times a year. And, um so sure, there's things I don't think there's there's things that I have learned that would be a big surprise to anybody, but they've just been reinforced by the the people that I've written about the subjects of my obituaries, and you know, so 
pretty good is better than perfect. Um, draw lines in the sand so you can move them. You know, make sure they know you'll miss them when they're gone. I wrote an obituary for a guy that everybody in town knew, and he was sort of a character and hung out on the sidewalk and talked to you all day long. And mm-hmm. and when he died, one of the things that um, one of his relatives said was that he didn't think anybody would miss him. And mm-hmm. his funeral was packed because he had impacted so many people, but he wasn't anybody's real best friend. He was just somebody that made our lives better every day with the things he said and did. Hmm. So, I mean, there's, those are the kind of things I've learned, which I think are the same kind of things we all know, but we just don't do it. And, and that's, I suppose, the good thing about reading obituaries or writing them or losing people you love is that it, it reminds you to pay more attention to, to life, you know. And as you talk about the, the simple things in life, the things in life that are good but that we don't really uh, take any time to appreciate. Right. I mean, we know it. I mean, everybody knows, you know, that you really need to, you know, maybe get off Facebook and, and actually walk next door and introduce yourself to the new neighbor. You know, we mm-hmm. know that. But it's just we just get in our habits and we don't. And I think... Um, Writing obituaries has reminded me of that. I think another thing that I've learned over the years that um, is surprising and um, but also really um, uh, inspiring is that whenever I go into a home um, and sit down with a family who has had somebody you know that they love die, you know whether it's unexpected or expected doesn't seem to matter um, to a to a one they're all asking me what they can do for me. You know, can I get you a cup of coffee? Take mm. the best seat. Have a cookie. You know, th- have some soup. I mean, it's so interesting to me that the thing that comforts people pretty much across the board is taking care of someone else. And mm. even in their worst moments, that's the instinct, you know, to give me the best chair in the room. When all of my instinct is say, no, 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 you know what, mm-hmm. I can stand. You are the people that need to lie down or sit. Uh-huh. But they want to help, and I have to let them kind of wait on me a little bit and drink another cup of coffee and have a cookie, even if I, I, that, I don't really want one. It would mm-hmm. be rude not to take one, and it makes them feel better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you also, I mean, is that kind of... Um the way that you approach uh, these obituaries that you're trying to, that not only, in other words, is it sort of a, is the title of your book, Find the Good, a double entendre? Is it not only that you're telling us to find the good in our lives to be more mindful of and appreciative of and so on, but also that when you are writing an obituary, you are looking for the good things in that person's life, like in other words, you know, not just to, oh, I don't know, not just, uh, let's say so-and-so was a bus driver. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of dull or, you know, not not particularly interesting, but if that's, right. but then, but if you are on assignment of a man who died who was a bus driver, then are you thinking in your head when you go to meet his family, well, what else did he do in his life? What, what else that's, not that, not that, Driving a bus isn't good, but I mean, you know, what else can I bring out? What other things did he do in his life that I can talk about, write about, so that people will um, see this other, all the other aspects of his life? 
Uh, yes, I mean, sure, to, to a certain extent, but e- even more so, I mean, if he was a bus driver, I, I would, um, you know, ask what, what routes he went on. You know, in our, in our community, he probably drove a bus for a tour company. You know, I'd ask how long, which company he worked for, what were his, you know, um, were there any, did he did he come home and tell stories about different things that happened on the bus? Um, I might talk to um, someone that had ridden on the bus who might remember uh, you know, the kind of music he listened to or that he sang or that, you know, once there was a flat tire and he entertained everybody, you know, something that would illustrate um, the kind of impact that um, he had just in that job rather than just list what, what job they had. And I would do the same thing for a bus driver like that as I would for the superintendent of schools, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think it's it's finding the good in, in even where you're at and saying, you know, they were good at this because, and, and it's even, like the president said the other day, I, I was listening to one of the eulogies for the, the, um, the, one of the people who was killed in Charleston, mm-hmm. you know, where he said, you know, in the end, I mean, were you a good person? Were they a good person? And I think I, I try to look for that, and I, and I have found that most people are, <laughs> you know. I mean, and most, most people are pretty good, and even the ones that might not be so good, there might be something that is is worth noting. They may have, you know, always had a really nice dog, or you know, um, uh-huh. they may have, uh, when they died, donated a bunch of money somewhere to something good and surprised everybody who thought they were a mean old skinflint. You know, that kind of thing. Uh huh. Uh huh. Do you? Does it get depressing? Some well, does it get depressing sometimes? I mean, that's sort of a general question. Does yeah, it, or, I mean, or, uh, of or are you always able to find, or is it, or is it the opposite? Because you're always able to find um, the good. Well, I mean, it's it, it gets it's hard because grief is hard. You know, people losing people. It's just really, really hard. It's like you said at the beginning. Um, you know, everybody's going to die, um, and yet it's it's sort of it still comes as a big shock when it actually happens to people that you love and live mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Um, even even if it's been a long illness, especially if it's been a sudden death, it's just a it's just tough. And um, so the hardest part for me is actually just sort of making the first phone call, knocking on the door. Hi, I'm here to help you write the obituary. Hmm. And and I find it I always find it what what helps is tell me some good stories. You know, let's not the the tendency you know, for friends and neighbors, as you know, to go in and start to hear all about the death, you know, how mm-hmm. they died and how bad it was. And and I don't, I skip that. That's like the last thing I ask a question uh-huh. about. I start with, you know, tell me about, you know, where did they grow up and what was their family like? And, you know, how did you meet? Or when did, you know, when did you get married? Or, you know, what was that like? Or, you know, were they a good dad or were they a good mom? Or, or you know, how did they end up in Alaska or whatever? And the stories just start coming out and the things that people choose to share are pretty much always good. Mm-hmm. What about, um, ha- have you come across, or how often have you come across, like when people start out telling you about this um, person's younger days, um, do you often find that like they had these dreams to become something or other, a ballerina, or um, uh, I don't know, you know, some... Uh, a politician or uh, something, and um, somewhere along the line, they 
they these dreams got put away and they became something else and their life wasn't quite the way they had hoped? Um, yeah, I, I think that does happen. I think in, in the town that I live in, oftentimes it's um, there's two things. There's people who had a big dreams, say, to be a, a great high school basketball player, and they were, and then it kind of went downhill from there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's hard. So, you know, that if somebody's 60 and you're remembering the, you know, the game where they were a runner-up at the state championship when they were 17 was the highlight, that's sometimes hard. Uh-huh. But, you know, it's it's something that is important to them, so I don't, you know, try to judge that. Um, conversely, there's people um, here, there was a, a family here that moved here in the 1940s after the Second World War and um, very artistic and had high hopes of starting a big arts colony here. Mm. Um, and the woman arrived with her mother, who was Madame Vick, who was an opera singer, and um, they were going to you know, sort of take on the world. Well, they, they did in a way. They formed a local theater group in Haines. We still have plays thanks to the Lynn Canal Committee players. They're, her uh, children are still here, and they're running sort of art shops and doing theatrical things. It might not be on the scale of her parents or what she may have thought, but she made a huge impact on our community in terms of the arts in a very um, small local way. And I would argue that maybe touched more lives than somebody who who did it on a on a bigger stage in a bigger city. Mhm. Mhm. And so is that part of I mean did you get any life lessons from from these kinds of stories um I mean any thing that you are trying to uh like I don't know telling people about about overcoming their obstacles and and continuing to fight for their dreams or 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 not or to be content with what you were just describing for example um well you know i mean i think there's a, there's a um, one of the one of the chapters is titled you know take the kind of happiness that comes your way and i think that um that's a really um kind of a a, a profound thing if if Instead of always looking for something else, I mean that's you're you're a psychiatrist. I don't I don't know as much about these things as you do, but it seems to me that if you can, if you can take the happiness in front of you instead of always be looking over for the next thing, like your mother always said, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Maybe it isn't. You know, maybe mm-hmm. Dorothy's right. There's no place like home. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a lot of the obituaries I've written for people who live in this small town have kind of come around to that. Um, lesson, and I think it's um, something to be reminded of. I was talking to um, a friend of mine who's I'm um, I'm 56. My birthday's today, and oh, I have happy birthday. Um, thank you. <laughs> and I have a friend who's who's dating a man that's 75, and she's my age. And she's like, I just am going to have to break it off because he's too old. You know, we love each other, we do all these things, but this isn't just it's not going to work. And I found myself I'm like, God, I don't want to sound like my book, but I'm like, take the <laughs> happiness that comes your way. You don't know what tomorrow is or the next day or the next day, you know? Mm-hmm. It seems like well, if if I've learned anything from writing obituaries is that nothing's guaranteed and you might just want to, you know, hold on to what what you have. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, yeah, there's loss. There's loss any time. No, nobody can say just because you were the same age that something wouldn't happen. Yes, 
that uh, that the younger person walking across the street <laughs> could be right. there tomorrow. I mean, it's it's absolutely true, and you don't want to be like a gloom and doom person. But it's like, gee whiz, mm. um, hmm. don't turn away from happiness because you're worried about stability or something that you really can't control necessarily, even if you think you can. Yes, and I guess it goes back to something you were saying early on that. Um, that we, we expect to live longer than we do end up living. I mean, not just in years, but it's we expect that um, that life that we have all the time to make these kinds of decisions. Oh well, I won't accept the happiness today because down the road, you know, there's going to be something better. When in fact, mm-hmm. that might not be ever be the case. Right, and I, you know, I think I have learned that. I mean, I don't think I always get it, of course. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, I do that myself, but I'll catch myself, and all I have to do is write another obituary of, <laughs> you know, a friend that that was in great shape and my age and, you know, dropped dead of a heart attack skiing. The hmm. person who set all of our ski tracks. I mean, how, how can that be? You know, it's unfair. It's not right. It happens, though. And if mm-hmm. it happens in Haines, Alaska, surely it happens anywhere else in the world. Um, you know, but but then even then, in writing that obituary, you know, there were so many good stories about about this guy, Dennis, and, you know, about how funny he was and how he joked around and things like, I mean, talk about finding the good. He changed the name of his store. He, he sold furniture on Main Street in Haines, and he changed the name of the store um, because our radio station is a public radio station here. It's kind of a hybrid community radio station. I do a country show uh, uh, this afternoon after this. But anyway, he... Um, the underwriting statement would just let you name the name of your business. Mm-hmm. So he changed the name of Miles Furniture to Miles Furniture Showroom Carpet Warehouse and Appliance Palace. It's <laughs> 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 a small store in Haines, but he wanted to get in all the stuff that he had, and he was just funny <laughs> that way, very funny. And so even though everybody was just shocked and saddened and just really knocked for a loop when he died, I think reading his obituary made everybody realize that um, – you know how he con- contributed, and and maybe made people think, "Gee, I gotta have more fun. I've gotta be more like Dennis. I gotta, I gotta do goofy things and make people laugh." Mhm, mhm. Yes. Yeah, so there, are, there are always these lessons to be learned from, you know, how to, how to kind of try to do it better. Like people, there are people who die. I'm sure you've come who say, uh, "I wish I hadn't spent so much of my life working." And and that I had more fun, or that I had more time to spend with friends, or set aside more time to set a, to spend with friends and loved ones. Right. I have a, a story in the book about a man named Norm Blank who lived in Haines, who who had um, uh, a pulmonary. I think it's called pulmonary thrombosis. His, his lungs weren't good. It was a, it was a, um, uh, uh, basically a hereditary condition that the men in his family had, and they had died young, and he knew he was a carrier for it. And, and so that may have, that shadow of that over him may have led him to lead a life where he really did put family and friends and neighbors and community first. And um, writing his obituary was such a lesson for me because it was right at a time when I was really busy trying to do a lot of other things and maybe not putting some of the people closest mm-hmm. to me first. You tend to, I think, um, put them on the back burner. Oh, your family's always here. They'll always yes. love you. I just have to run to this meeting or I have to make this phone call or I have to go do this, whatever it is you're doing that that really isn't that important right then, but you think it is. 
Yes. And uh-huh. um, and Norm always put them first. And even he was a commercial fisherman. And even better, he he didn't he wasn't quick to mend his nets because he said that um, uh, he he wanted you know some fish to get through to to live for another you know to spawn uh-huh. and and live for another year. And you uh-huh. know, a commercial fisherman to do that is really um, remarkable. And in yeah. the end, um, his friend said you know that. Norm also was very aware of our our connection with nature and the world around us, and that um, uh, one of his friends told me, just say he spoke for the fish. Mm. Norm always spoke for the fish, and, Mm. you know, that's a nice thing to go out on, too. Yes, yes. Well, I want to make sure, talking about going out on, I want to make sure that I give people your website uh, address, which is a real treat and... um, (laughs) You know, it, it's uh, it makes makes you want to go to Alaska. <laughs> um, the Thank website you. Heather's website is heatherlendy dot com, and that's spelled Heather H E A T H E R Lendy L E N D E dot com. The book again is called Find the Good: Unexpected Life Lessons from a Small Town Obituary Writer. Well, Heather, I really enjoyed this, and um, I think the book has. Uh, you've given us some highlights of, of some of the lessons that we can learn, and we all need to remember to remember these things as we just uh, go on thinking life is going to go on forever. So thank you very much. Again, that's Heather Lendy, L-E-N-D-E dot com, and find the good. So thank, thank you very you much, so much. Carol. It's really been nice to, to be talking to you today, too. And happy birthday. This is kind <laughs> of an ironic topic to be talking about on your birthday. Hey, are you but... kidding? Obituary writers really celebrate birthdays. <laughs> so happy to be here. Well, thank you. <laughs> okay, thank thanks. you all for listening. We're going to be taking a break now, and we're going to my next guest. Um, so stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Don't write yourself off, yeah. 
And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you about facing death to live a better life. We just heard from Heather Lindy. She is the author of Find the Good. And um, kind of, I'm telling you, if you go to her website, but don't go yet, um, because we have another great guest coming up, um, but it, it really does make you want to go to Alaska, uh, especially if you're a writer and, and have, would like that quiet um, and the beautiful nature around you. Now we have another story that relates to facing death, uh, to live a better life, a slightly different take. Um, my guest is Peter Bedard. He is um, someone who has uh, experienced near death, um, near, has had near, one near-death experience and several uh, close-to-death experiences, but he's still here to tell his tale, and these experiences have made him passionate about helping other people heal. Peter was a dancer until he was slammed into the back of a semi-truck and almost died. That was his near-death experience. Um, he's had similar experiences. He's now become an alternative health expert and author of the book called Convergence Healing, A Seven-Step Process to Lovingly Heal Your Pain. Now, he has an M- a master's in consciousness studies. He's a hypnotherapist and a coach, and he helps people. To- he also uh, hosts an online TV show. And I will give you the website for that as well before the end of the show, so you can check that out. So, Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Your last guest was so interesting. I've never been to Alaska, but, boy, they have some good stories up there. Yes. You know, it's interesting how everyone in her small town, and a lot of the small towns that there are, really get to know each other. It's not like not like living in L.A., like where we live. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends. You know, L.A. is turning into little villages. It's a really interesting place. Yes, yes. I, I, I live out in the east portion of L.A. I live out in Highland Park, and I live in a little downtown, and I'm surrounded by restaurants and a bowling alley and a movie theater, and and it's a pretty cool place to get involved with my neighbors, and yeah, huh. it's it's a fun little thing. Huh. Okay. Yes, that's true. There are these little little pockets. Um, well, let's talk about uh, your. Well, let's start with the first experience you had, which you were telling me before we started was when you were 17 or 18. That was your near death experience. I guess that was the semi truck. So tell us about that. There you were. I mean, I presume before the you were a dancer, or you were studying to be a dancer. I was. I had uh, that a uh, very blessed uh, sort of experience around that, where somebody discovered me, and uh, I had been a kid in community theater, and uh, a choreographer came in to work on a project I was doing, and uh, he immediately pushed me into a school and got me full scholarships in a school, and it was just an amazing experience. Uh, I had all of the markings, right, you know, the, the structural things, the bone type of things, the body type, all that kind of stuff of, of being a dancer. And I already was sort of a dancer because I was doing community theater. And then I had this bit of a discovery type of thing, and, and I was adopted into this whole world. And I was on my way. I, at the time when I died, I, I was uh, only 17, and I was on my way to um, – I was at that crossroads. Am I going to go to college? Am I going to go to dance school? Am I going to betray my parents who want me to go to college, or am I going to yeah. continue and run off and and go to school? And the accident sort of solved all that for me. So, huh? Huh? <laughs> wow! Isn't that 
Boy, it's amazing when those kinds of things happen. So how did how did you get into the accident? What happened in the accident? I was actually, so I was a kid actor, and I grew up in the Bay Area up north, and I was involved in a, a community theater that, it was a huge community theater. Their, their house was 5,000 seats. So my community theater work as a kid was as the kid in the adult plays. So I was the kid that had one or two lines in the whole play and, you know, was so-and-so's grandson or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had been acting for a while and decided, you know, I really wanted to do this a little more professionally. And I had auditioned for a show. I got cast in the show, and it was my first real sort of professional paying gig. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go to a party. There was an opening night party. I wanted to go to that party, and my parents said no. I was 17 and a half. Hmm. And uh, I was very, very angry, but I obeyed my parents. And as I was driving home, a car came up behind me and pushed me into a semi-truck. So I was on my moped, or it was actually a Moto Bicane, which oh. is a, a fast, it's kind of like a souped-up bicycle. So it's a bicycle with an engine on it. And I uh, was pushed into the semi-truck. I jumped out of my body right before the impact. I got to see the whole thing. And then I was down the tunnel. So it was a pretty pretty interesting experience. <laughs> huh, you know, it's interesting because if you were doing what your parents wanted coming home, it would have been made, seemed to make more sense if you were going against their wishes and, and you got punished like this, but no, you were you were being a good boy and look what happened. I was, I was, <laughs> and I resented that for years, for years and years and years and years. I was yeah. I was very angry about that. Is I, I wanted my parents to trust me, and it was an interesting thing. When I had the accident, I was already angry, and then, of course, when the accident happened, um, you know, as it was happening, I was, I was petrified. I was scared, and then I jumped out of my body before uh, the impact, so I got to watch the impact, and when I died, you know, there's a whole thing that happened on the other side, but when I came back, all of that anger, you know, on the other side, there was none of that anger. And when I came back to this place that we're living in now, that anger sort of got locked into my bones. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had to deal with lots of anger issues for, for quite some time. And so what did you see on the other side? Well, it was interesting. So for me, you know, I joke about this, but I'm very serious at the same time. Uh, death is the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> I say that jokingly, but it's very true. The experience of of having died and crossed over and been on this other side and and knowing that part of life has just been an amazing gift. When I What was on the other side for me was the typical sort of uh, experience that people describe. I mean, there are variations on it. For me, I was going down a tunnel that was sort of spinning in one direction, and I was shooting through that tunnel, sort of like a corkscrew type of thing. And on the other side, it was very, and you know, I hate that, that it's like this because it was very cinematic. You know, the scene where the guy's supposed to be in heaven or wherever this place is, and, you know, there's white fluffy clouds all over the place. Well, that was kind of my experience. Hmm. But not, instead of white puffy clouds, there was just this sense of just nothingness. And there was this white, almost like, you know, here in L.A., we get that June gloom sometimes. And when you look up into that sky and there's that diffused light, hmm. that's what it was like. It was just this space of diffused light. And I couldn't identify. I, I remember actually thinking to myself, where am I? What is this place? And thinking, there's no floor, but I'm standing. I'm very aware that I'm standing. And 
this place has a feeling like it's a space that's defined and contained, and yet it also felt like it was this vast, open everything. And Mm -hmm. uh, I remember walking around the space, actually being in it and being confused and being very curious, and at the same time wondering where my family members were because I thought I'd, you know, I'd, I'd seen enough movies and read enough books that I thought that uh, your ancestors were supposed to greet you on the other side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it was just a, it was an amazing experience. And on the other side, all of that anger that I had, all of that frustration, all of my fears, all the shame that I had being the kid that I was, uh, it was gone. There was absolute bliss. There's no way to actually describe the joy, the happiness, the peace, that was occurring, and it was occurring inside of me uh, on the other side. So it was it was a remarkable experience of bliss that I've never been able to replicate in this life. Hmm. Hmm. So what happened when you actually came back to your, and I know that, that you you were kind of angry also that, that you wanted to stay because of all that bliss, and you were kind of angry yeah. that you... That it wasn't your time and you were sent back. Yeah, most people, most people that have these near-death experiences, they, they come back to life because they feel like they're being called. They want to, you know, they're, they're children. They don't want to miss out on their children. They don't want to uh, abandon somebody or something like that. Well, I, my bags are packed. <laughs> I was ready to stay. And on the other side, the, this uh, man appeared. And I had no idea who he was, and yet at the same time, I had this experience like love that I could never really explain. Like there was this person. It was I, I call him Lao Tzu because I have no other way to identify him. It was like an old. It was he was an old Chinese man. He was very hmm. transparent. It was almost like he was a holograph, but I could still make out what he was wearing and 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 his who who he was. And he told me that I wasn't supposed to be there and that I had to go back. And when he told me that, that's when all that anger flooded back in Mm. and I was back in this space Mm. that we're Mm. in now. And that anger followed me. I I didn't want to be back. Even to this day, if if God, the universe, whoever comes back and says, okay, it's time to go, I'd be like, all right, bring it on. Let's go. I mean, Mm. that experience of being on the other side was one of the most amazing experiences, and it kind of put this life in perspective for me. How is in that? that? For me, and this was, became my understanding, that, that we are eternal beings, and this life that we're in right now is really sort of a, a stopover. It's sort of a little vacation or, or, or experience that we're having in a long, long list or lineage of lives. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I I I totally know what you're saying. Um, uh, and what also so when you came back, you um, your 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 bones were cr- I mean, it, it took away the chance of being a dancer. What actually were your injuries? Yeah. So uh, the guy. So when I was I was pushed into the semi truck, and I I I I actually punished myself for many years because. I kept thinking that I should have done something. I should have achieved. I should have jumped the curve. I should have laid the bike down. I should have been able to save myself. And mm. going back and exploring the memory of what really happened, there just there was no time. It all happened in seconds. 
Yeah. And when and and to be able to forgive myself around that was very very important and part of releasing that anger as well. But mm-hmm. what happened to me was my leg, my left leg, my knee area and up uh, or up and down from the knee had shattered into little tiny pieces and each mm-hmm. of those pieces was um, had a ligament. So actually my ligaments and muscles and tendons had a little piece of bone attached to them. So the knee splintered into all kinds of little pieces. And because of that, it was actually, if I'm going to have an accident, I was blessed to have it this way because they were able to actually glue back a large portion of my bones that had shattered, Mm. like a puzzle. And they put a bunch of pins in me as well. Um, I lost most of my cartilage, uh, but they were able to actually save my leg. So my left leg shattered, my right wrist split open, I lost all the nerves in my right hand, I cracked my vertebrae, and I had brain damage. And then, you know, I, I scraped open my face and stuff of that sort. Uh, luckily, I had always worn my helmet, and uh, that really saved me, because if mm. I had not worn my helmet, mm. then uh, I wouldn't be here with you today. Yes. So, okay, take us from there to how you've devoted your life now um, to to helping other people heal. So do you know and, the story of Sisyphus? What? Do you know the story of Sisyphus? Yes. Okay, so the story of Sisyphus, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite stories. It's come to be one of my favorite stories. It's not a very detailed story, but it's the story of, of the king of Corinth and how he was punished by the gods for cheating death. And he, then his punishment in the afterlife was that he had to roll a rock, a boulder up a hill, and had to do that every day. So every day he got to the top of the hill, the rock was down in the morning, and he had to roll it back up. Mm-hmm. And I started to look at life as that because, remember, I was angry and I was frustrated. My dance career was over. Who I knew how to be, who I knew myself as in the world was taken away from me. So it was almost like I was rendered mute. I didn't know mm-hmm. how to live in the world. I didn't know how to participate in the world because that way that I had understood life was now gone. Yeah. So I was very that, – that anger and that resentment and that kind of stuff was like that burden – that I was rolling up the hill. And mm. life itself, when I'd wake up in the morning, I'd kind of open my eyes and say, okay, I guess I'm still here. <laughs> uh-huh. And so uh, life wasn't very fun. And I was also in, in lots of pain. I mean, I had arthritis, and I had to learn how to walk again, and I had asthma and bronchitis and fibromyalgia. So that initial accident created what I call a cascade of pain. Mm. And I just get having, I kept having one more thing after another, and that's hence the close-to-death experiences that I had. Uh-huh. And so for 20 years, I was in chronic pain, and I had to heal myself, and I had to really change that perspective of my thinking. I started to heal, and I developed a process for that healing focused on myself because I figured, well, my understanding and my, my sort of adolescent mind's understanding was that heaven didn't want me. So my option of killing myself was sort of taken off the table because heaven didn't want me, and I really didn't want to go any other place <laughs> if that place existed. Uh, so I had better just stay here. But I was miserable here, and that was that rock that I was rolling up the hill. Uh-huh. And, I, and every morning there was that rock again, and I had to start changing my perspective. And as I did that, I was healing my body. I was healing my spirit. I was healing my thinking processes. And now I still kind of look at it like I'm rolling the rock up the hill, but now I enlist people to roll it up with me. Hmm. So kind of like Mark Twain and Tom Sawyer, you know, Tom Sawyer has to paint the fence, right? I get yeah. all my friends to come on board and help me do all these uh-huh, things. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> and so how did you figure out how to change your mindset and to help well, other people? Well, I started to, you know, I, I started to tap into a sort of universal knowledge that I didn't understand was, was really universal. I started talking to my pain itself. And, uh, you know, many years later, I discovered a quote by Rumi that says, the cure for the pain is in the pain. Mm. And I resisted drugs and I resisted, you know, addiction things and, and stuff like that because I saw how my parents had been in pain for years and how they just took drugs and they never seemed to get better. They just managed it. And so I didn't do the drugs. I didn't do the follow-up surgeries. I didn't do anything. I was just in terrible amounts of pain. And I started to explore alternative uh, forms of healing. So I, I had barely any money, and every paycheck for a good decade really went into my healing. And when somebody said, hey, I, I tried this new therapy I stumbled on, I went and did it too. And I discovered a process for talking to the pain, really embracing it, jumping into it, uh, and loving this part of you that's in pain, instead of beating it up and punishing it, making it wrong and bad, actually embracing it and asking it what it needs to heal. And it's in pain, therefore it needs more love. And most of us, when we're in pain, that part of us that's hurting, we, in a way, objectify it. We want to punish it. We're ashamed of it. We want to cut it out, throw it away, drug it. We make it wrong and bad. And in, in, in our thinking and our behavior, we're really poisoning that part that's already hurting. And I started to do the opposite. And it was really hard because my natural instinct was to cut that part off. And as I started to love it and embrace it, I started to understand that it could communicate with me. And our bodies are always communicating all the time. When you, when you really understand it from that point of view, you know, we have whole systems in our bodies that are designed to monitor. And then we have this wonderful thing of the subconscious mind. And as I started exploring the subconscious and, and the pain itself, and I started, you know, making friends with it, and then asking it, well, how are you today? What do you need today? And then that question started to evolve from not only what do you need, but what do you need me to do physically? What do you need me to do with my mind and my thoughts today? And what do you need to do with, this, with your spirit? And so I developed a whole process based primarily on, on that concept of befriending your pain and then asking and developing a relationship with it, uh, asking what it needs and letting the pain lead the way. Often our heads are trying to lead the way. We go into fear and worry, which is where I was for a long time, and I was trying to think my way through the pain, and that was just a disaster. And so when I gave up that logical, conscious type of having to figure things out, and I really tuned in to not only my body but the part that was really hurting, I started getting messages. I started, uh, you know, all of a sudden an idea would pop in, a thought would pop in, um, a treatment, somebody would mention a treatment, and I would get that sort of knowing experience of, yes, that's it. Mm. You know, like when you have a dream and you're interpreting a dream, and, you know, you're going to your friends and asking them, well, what does this mean? And, you know, somebody gives you a response, and you're like, mm, that doesn't feel right. And then when somebody says that response that feels right, it's like, yes, that's it. Mm -hmm. And I started really nurturing that intuitive inner voice. And I've been able to heal arthritis and asthma and bronchitis and sciatica. I've been able to bounce back from these close-to-death experiences where my hemoglobin was 
splitting and attacking, you know, my body or my white blood cells were over multiplying or severe dehydration, anxiety disorders, depression, all of that kind of stuff. So I've been really pulling back on what some people might call the ego and really learning to tune in to the pain itself for, so it can lead the way. And I do that now with my clients. I became a hypnotherapist, and, uh, and I studied NLP and different other processes. And I do this with people all the time. I, I've been able to travel around the world and teach what I do. It's, it's been a big blessing. I call it sharing the gold from the garbage. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Well, what is an example of some of, of something that your pain would tell you, or one of these illnesses would tell you? Sure. Like, well, when let's you just start with what... my knee. Let's go back to that, since that was such a primary experience for me, and it's a physical experience. And I think people can wrap their head around uh, a little, sometimes easier with emotional pain. But I had a physical pain in my knee. My knee had been doing really, really well, but when I was 17 and in that accident. One of the doctors, a young doctor who uh, I hope he learned his lesson, but a young doctor came up to me and told me that what I was experiencing, the pain I had, all the problems that I had, wouldn't go away. In fact, they probably wouldn't be better. I'd probably be barely able to walk, and I'd have to use a wheelchair eventually. Wow. So he sort of, at 17 years old, he predicted what my life was going to be like for the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, or 20-something years. And he said by the time I was 40, I wasn't going to be able to, I was going to have severe problems and probably have to have my knee replaced. Hmm. Now, I had enough awareness, even in my trauma state, that I was able to say, you know, screw off. <laughs> that's, that's not the life I choose for myself. Uh-huh. But that thought, that message from an authority figure like that, really haunted my subconscious it really every now and then it would pop up i'd think about it my knee would twinge or something and that thought would be there and when i was 39 and a half my i was walking from my garage to my front door and my knee literally popped and swelled up to the size of a football Hmm. and i couldn't walk i could barely barely do anything with it and the doctors of course said hey you know we might need to consider surgery looks like that's the route we're going and um you know, they gave me pain pills and told me not to walk and elevate it. And I, I said, oh, all right, all right, I'll listen to what you guys have to say. But I started, I started noticing that I was yelling at my knee. I was angry at it. I was frustrated with it. So it was kind of like a one-sided argument. And I had been doing enough work at that time with my practice and with other types of alternative therapies that I thought, well, what if I stopped yelling at it? And what if I actually change the dynamics of that relationship? Oh, Peter, I'm hearing the, the music in the background, which means that we don't have any time left. Ah, but, well, <laughs> people can read all about it in Convergence Healing, my book. Well, I, was gonna, I just want to give out, yes, your website, createyourhealth.com. Uh, again, my guest is Peter Bedard. His website with his television show is createyourhealth.com. And his book is called Convergence Healing, A Seven-Step Process to Lovingly Heal Your Pain. And for the rest of the uh, – so, so you can find the rest of the information in the book that you were going to go on to tell us. But, uh, but we obviously got the general idea, and yes, that's horrible when doctors do that, um, you know, make, make like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, they exactly. put this – 
prediction out there, and that does go into people's unconscious mind, and it makes makes it happen unless they do the kinds of things that you fortunately uh, figure it out how to do. But yes, it's it's really it's really a, a horrible disservice, and and uh, and people should patients people should reject that kind of thing, even if it's a seems like it's a very wise doctor who's telling you all this. Absolutely, well, you create your life. Yes. Well, Peter, thank you. I'm glad you didn't die. I'm glad you came back, and I'm sure, I'm sure the patients who you treat are as well. So, thank you very much, Peter Bedard, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and yes, um, death can be beautiful. Looking at it and and learning from it, uh, how to live your life better today. So, thanks for listening. Um, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 